0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.
2: This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Explore Ithaca's waterfalls, orchards, and craft beverage scene.
1: Plan your getaway at visitithica.com. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila. Handcrafted, expert approved, with over 20 international blind tasting awards. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York, 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly.
3: For industry news, 11 Miami restaurants earned Michelin stars and one spot earned two. So this is the first time Michelin is in Florida. Do you have a take on this? I think it's incredible for any restaurant to get accolades and recognition. Where I felt that I was kind of like shy of joy is why now? And what is what is the intention behind such a prestigious award, and an organization, and how can they impact and help shift some of the conversations that are fundamentally still happening? Like, we still have tipping in restaurants. We still don't have healthcare, We still don't have these fundamental things that other industries have. What is the intention?
1: That was chef, restaurateur, and food industry advocate, Suzanne Barr. In conversation with host Sherry Bayer on the weekly industry news discussion on HRN's All in the Industry. This week on Meetin' Three, we're looking at how history and policy connect current events to what's on our plates. For the past two years, the news headlines have been stark and, at times, downright terrifying. The issues disease, war, supply shortages, do not exist in a vacuum. These global concerns have trickle-down effects on industries across the board, including food. For instance, during COVID, the New York State Liquor Authority permitted to-go cocktails, a radical shift for the state. For food delivery companies like Grubhub, 2020 set new revenue records. Russian items are being pulled from restaurant and bar menus, And parents across the U.S. have been desperately searching for formula to feed their babies. What can seem like an isolated issue is often anything but. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meat and Three on HRN.
4: Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food,
5: news, and storytelling.
4: A square meal. For your ears.
0: Meat and Three.
1: In the month of June alone, the Food and Drug Administration recalled 21 products. Among them, crab meat, peanut butter cup ice cream, protein bars, and candies. Since 1906, the FDA has been working to make food, cosmetics, medicine, medical devices, and some household appliances safer for American consumers. The United States Department of Agriculture, which also regulates the safety of particular food products, predates the FDA by 44 years. We were curious about how food regulations came to be and how this recent slate of recalls fits into the bigger picture. So we tuned into HRN's A Taste of the Past, episode 346, in which science journalist Deborah Blum says that consumer safety began with Harvey W. Wiley, one of the first chief chemists of the United States Drug Administration from 1882
6: to 1912. One of Wiley's big missions was to get the information out. You know, at one point in the 1890s, he hired the first science writer ever hired by the federal government to take the reports that he was doing about food and, and translate them into public documents that would be accessible to people, yeah. and he did a lot of you know going and he talked at schools. He talked to women's groups, which was a huge deal at the time because women didn't have the vote. So, a lot of men of his stature didn't take them as seriously as he did. He spent he worked with pure food advocates. He spent a lot of time trying to get this information out. But, you know, that was an uphill battle getting the information out. And so I think one of the things you have going on is you people who are really following this issue, people who are um, in the food science or food chemistry or pure food community, they're all making very careful choices, right? Mm -hmm. But a lot of people didn't know this you know there's nothing on the can to give it away there's nothing on the box to give it away um the government is not doing you know an amazing job of getting the information out and industry's telling you nothing So people were eating a lot of dangerous food without really having that awareness. And so one of the challenges, both for Wiley and for his allies, was saying to the, you know, we'll talk a lot about being an informed consumer today, was creating this new generation of informed consumers.
1: Needless to say, a lot has changed in the past 100 years. And over time, the FDA has given varying priority to food regulation. But why? Isn't what we eat just as important as the pills we take?
4: Essentially, FDA is below the Department of Health and Human Services.
1: That's Helena bottomiller evich on episode 364 of HRN's What Doesn't Kill You. She's an investigative reporter covering food policy and explains this about how the FDA works.
4: It regulates like a quarter of the economy or a fifth of the economy or something which is big, right? Consumer spending, think about it, includes like cosmetics, food, um, microwaves, drugs, biologics, medical devices, right? So it's a pretty sweeping um, agency, but because it's below HHS, um, the FDA commissioner, Senate confirmed, but they're not in the cabinet. Um, so they're just kind of structurally a little bit lower down in the, in the government when you think about it that way. Then there's the the fact that the FDA commissioner, almost always comes from more of the drug or medical product side. So like we have never that I know of seen a commissioner that was like really from the food side. I think we had one veterinarian that, you know, had mm-hmm. maybe some more animal drug background, but you know, it, it's, it's almost always heavily on the, you know, the medical products and drug side. So then I think you get a natural sort of leadership Um, tendency to to focus more on these other issues. There have been some exceptions where where commissioners will come in and they have a lot of interest in food, like David Kessler during the Clinton administration was really interested in nutrition, did the Nutrition Facts label for the first time. Recently, actually, um, the Trump administration, or um, Scott Gottlieb, who was commissioner during the Trump administration, he was tremendously interested in food issues. I mean, Mm. you would see him pushing the ball. He was trying to push the ball forward, even on like sodium reduction, which was hard to get done even during the Obama years. And so there's a few exceptions. But for the most part, the commissioner is just not that interested in food issues. Lax regulation of
1: food products can and does have dire consequences on consumers, like illness, hospitalization, and even death. Over the past five years, there's been an increase in FDA recalls, which is likely a result of greater diligence, but there's more work to be done. In our next story, we shift focus from the safety of our food to the safety of food workers. The COVID-19 pandemic changed the food service industry from one day to the next. While many workers were declared essential overnight, Working conditions didn't adapt as quickly or at all. At the start of June, workers in Folsom, California, went on strike, advocating for the passage of the Fast Food Accountability and Standards, or FAST, Recovery Act. The bill would make the state the first to create a fast-food sector, or FFS, council, tasked with establishing standards on wages, hours, and working conditions the FFS Council stands to alter the dynamics between fast food workers, franchisors, franchisees, and the government, including OSHA, the U.S.'s Occupational Safety and Health Administration. We're going to take a look at some of the standards currently governing workplaces under OSHA and what shortcomings have led workers to ask for more robust representation. Here's Mother Jones reporter Tom Philpot on What Doesn't Kill You, Episode 316
5: you know, in the nineties, OSHA said, okay, let's, you know, let's get as much good research as we can and come up with a plan that we'll call the ergonomic standard that will be for all workplaces. Um, And, you know, they, they knew that there were some workplaces that it was going to, you know, make more of a dent than others. And it was actually pretty simple. It was, um, you know, the, the, if you are, you know, if you run a, um, a plant, a factory, a facility that causes where, where there's lots of complaints from workers about it. And so, you, you know, first of all, you listen to your workers, you find out you know, what their problems are, um, and then you figure out, you put resources into figuring out, you know, what are the, the activities on the job that, that cause this and what kind of modifications could you make to, um, to reduce it? OSHA was
1: originally created to establish and enforce workplace safety standards, but unfortunately, that mission can be easily undermined. For instance, under the Trump administration, Secretary of Labor Eugene Scalia made great efforts to increase productivity in the meat industry.
5: The thrust of the administration has been uh, to keep production going, you know, COVID be damned. And so it's been clear from the top that protecting workers in the meatpacking industry is not the priority. The priority, in fact, is to protect executives and shareholders in these companies from, you know, lost sales due to less production and lawsuits based on workers uh, quite properly saying that they were not protected.
1: From March 1st, 2020 to February 1st, 2021, at the top meatpacking companies, including Tyson, Smithfield Foods, JBS... Cargill, and National Beef, company data showed that 59,000 employees suffered from COVID-19 and 269 workers died. It didn't have to be this bad.
5: What OSHA said was, you know, six feet of distance, if possible, um, (laughs) then I am free from, you know, from liability. And that's going to be a powerful uh, argument in court, and uh, OSHA is making that, or the Department of Labor under Scalia is making that explicit, um, which to me is just jaw-dropping.
1: The compromises to safety during a time when workers were most valuable won't quickly be forgotten. They are, in fact, the backdrop for historic unionization efforts, strikes, and policy proposals like California's FAST Act. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a short break.
2: This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, helping you to plan your next getaway. Ithaca has waterfalls and wineries, art and theater, outdoor recreation, and family fun. The area is famous for its glacier-carved gorges, co-op-run businesses, and cultural influences from Cornell University and Ithaca College. The area is well known for its local cideries, which are leading the way in America's cider revival. You can hear from the region's cider makers directly on HRN's series Hardcore. There is something really special about Ithaca's climate for cultivating delicious apples steeped in history and terroir. The second season of Hardcore is out now. You can learn all about apples and fermentation and dive into how cider makers and their communities are working to create an equitable industry and one that is resilient to climate change.
1: Listen to Hardcore on your favorite podcast app. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods at a family-owned and operated distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. 818 is created from fully matured blue agave from the Los Altos and Valles regions of tequila. It is then slow-cooked for over 30 hours, extracted using traditional Tajona wheels, distilled twice in copper pot stills, and aged in American and French oak barrels. This process creates the best-tasting, highest-quality tequila possible. Their tequilas have received over 20 blind-tasting awards. They strive for excellence in every sip. 818's Blanco is sweet and smooth, with undertones of tropical and citrus fruits. Their Reposado is soft and balanced with notes of caramel and vanilla. Their Añejo is elegant and velvety, with crisp herbal notes and a warm vanilla finish. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their tequila and find it near you. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York, 40% alcohol by volume. Drink responsibly. Welcome back to Meet and 3. Since the pandemic, the trend of government-run agencies and private monolith companies playing fast and loose with safety and regulations has become more pervasive. Even though the United States Department of Agriculture is responsible for keeping meat behemoths in check, they've been guilty of turning a blind eye toward glaring problems. Rudy Howell, a former chicken farmer for Purdue and whistleblower on the company, was fired for speaking out against unsanitary practices with equipment. Without accountability, businesses like Purdue have carte blanche in running their operations. Amanda Hitt is the director of the Government Accountability Project's Food Integrity Campaign. On episode 347 of What Doesn't Kill You, she tells Rudy's story.
3: There's the the part about the birds being sort of a substandard quality and, and... Not able to thrive, so there's that. But the when we were talking when I when I was mentioning the the sanitation, that mm. is actually his complaint was outside of his control. Um, again, you, it's it's hard to imagine, but these birds are only alive for you know a little over a month. we are only like five right. six weeks of, of age, and at the end of their grow out, when they're they're about five pounds in Rudy's case, Rudy
1: as in Rudy Howell, the whistleblower.
3: They come with machines that are called catch machines. Again, you know, it's um, it's hard to if you haven't seen something like this, the best way to describe it is a chicken vacuum that comes into Rudy wow. would come into Rudy's barns and suck up the chickens. Right. It's like a, yeah, I know. It, it, it's how it's it's how it's done, um, at least in Rudy's case. Or there's and they come in with catch crews and, and they you know pick up get the birds that are ready to go to market right well in Rudy's case he was finding that the machinery that was being used at someone else's farm was contaminated with dead birds in the in there right actually oh. yeah so somebody else's sick chicken stuff is basically coming over to Rudy's farm, and they're using these dirt, this dirty equipment, and the transportation itself was compromised. Mm-hmm. And Rudy felt that it was it was um, unsanitary and unsafe, not right. only for his flock, but ultimately for the end consumer. Which is where you have to understand: none of these things just sort of. This all starts at the hatchery. I mean, the, you know, like this sure. is a this is a full chain of of potential areas for problems. And Rudy just caught this one, and he had he had made his complaints known several times. But, you know, the question is, well, what did the company do about it? Nothing, which is unfortunately the nature of this system. Rudy made his complaints just like most whistleblowers, actually more than 80 percent of whistleblowers. They don't go right to the news. They don't go to the media. They don't go to lawyers. They don't go to Congress. Mm -hmm. They go to their boss and and say, hey, there's something wrong. You need to fix it. Let's Mm -hmm. make the system better. And that's exactly Mm -hmm. what Rudy did and it fell on deaf ears. Um, He even, you know, he went to the USDA. He's, he did everything right. um, And still nothing, nothing was done to correct this and and other issues too. But this one was the one that um, Rudy was uh, Rudy talks about in his complaint. And, um, and uh, it, you know, it it was, it I think it, especially in this, this day and age where we're so afraid of zoonotic disease and transfer and global pandemics, I mean, that's all Mm -hmm. on everybody's mind. It's not the time for a company to be playing fast and loose um, with with their transportation.
1: As recently as last year, people were heavily fined for not wearing face masks in public for the possible health risks they posed to others. What would it look like if we held big food producers equally accountable? And of course, the safety and security of the food supply chain isn't just an issue in the United States. Our next story is about the checks and balances, or lack thereof, within the global food supply. In February, Russia shocked the world when it invaded Ukraine. The United States and other countries immediately responded with sanctions against Russia. And around the globe, everyday citizens hung blue and yellow flags in solidarity with the Ukrainian people. But in today's deeply interconnected world, the impacts of the war extend far beyond Ukraine's disregarded borders. The conflict is already having a global impact on food supplies. Katie Kiefer is back with journalist Tom Philpot in episode 363 of What Doesn't Kill You.
6: Let's jump right into it, Tom. So you wrote a piece in Mother Jones on April 6th, uh, and I might say that you scooped the New York Times, which had a similar very long piece for a newspaper uh, about how uh, the conflict in the Ukraine will uh, affect uh, global hunger and food reserves. Um, So what your article does is deconstruct how the war in Ukraine is going to affect hunger globally. And I want you to explain why this particular war, as opposed to, say, all the other bloody conflicts uh, that are ongoing, Syria, uh, Sudan, you know, uh, Somalia, you you name it, where is it not warfare uh, around the globe right now? But why is this one uh, having such a particularly uh, strong impact on food production?
5: That's a great question. Um, I mean, if you were going to choose a place in the world to have a war to do maximum disruption of a global food system, this might be it. Um, And the reason is, is that uh, so, you know, first of all, Ukraine has got this incredibly rich topsoil. It's got this this, you know, piece of land in the middle of the country that they call the black earth region because it's got uh, a store of topsoil. That has few rivals in the world, like the US Corn Belt, um, right. Argentine Pampas. Um, and, and so, you know, it's an incredibly important wheat growing region. Um, just east of there is the Russian wheat lands, uh, which uh, Vladimir Putin has really built up over the past 20 years, invested a lot of money in, um, and has made Russia the biggest wheat exporter in the world. And a lot of that wheat leaves the country and enters the world market through the Black Sea, that is to say, through Ukraine. So it's this incredibly important trade route. And it has been for centuries and centuries.
1: Tom explained that the war in Ukraine not only destroys and disrupts current crops of grain, it also prevents the export of existing grain reserves. All of that causes grain prices to skyrocket. Back in April, Tom predicted that could have serious consequences for hunger around the world, and he's already being proven right. As of 2020, together, Russia and Ukraine exported more than a quarter of all the wheat traded around the world. And many of the countries that rely on that wheat, particularly in Africa and the Middle East, were already dealing with widespread food insecurity before the Ukraine invasion. In June, the United Nations released its second report on the global impacts of the war in Ukraine. It highlighted the dire effects of the conflict on global food access and urged the international community to act now to prevent a food crisis in 2023. It warned that failure to do so could lead to even more violent conflicts breaking out across the world. The crisis has already led to calls from some in the United States, including the president, to ramp up our already massively industrialized wheat production at home, But Tom says that's exactly the wrong answer.
5: The right right answer is to shift to biodiversity, to crop rotations, to working in legumes into rotations that fix nitrogen, to lower your need for fertilizer. Um, Everything we just discussed about investing in in agriculture, in sort of, you know, staple agriculture in the global south, Um, you know, big investments in that. Um, These are the ways that we really um, end the crisis, not by just, you know, doing more of the same at an intensified pace.
1: Tom and Katie discussed how industrial agriculture in the U.S. is already degrading waterways that many Americans rely on for drinking water and leaving communities more vulnerable to droughts, worsened by climate change.
5: Even if we wanted to keep up this agriculture style of the United States, we can't because the ecologies that it it relies on are unraveling before our eyes. And I just hope this crisis gives us the opportunity as a society to think in a new direction.
1: Tom and Katie agreed. This is just the beginning of the crisis. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Learn more about this week's guests and topics in our show notes. Special thanks this week to Elba Tamara Rodriguez, Victoria French, and Zoe Gruskin. Meet and 3 is produced by Matt Patterson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs and in partnership with the City Council. Meetin and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meatin3.nyc. That's all spelled out.